We have a few questions from last week's talk, but uh, a bunch from a week or two before that that I stored up. The first is this, how does the devil have the power to tell the future? Well, this comes from the fact that the slave girl in Philippi that we read of last week had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future, verse 16. And if that's the case, then this person in this question says, how can the devil tell the future? Well, I've been scratching my head about this, and I think I've worked out the answer since I gave it last night at church. So anyway, I think you get the right one. Um, it's still sort of the same answer, but uh, I can't see in the Bible where it's, it's clear to know what the answer is to this. But we need to remember that Satan is powerful, but also defeated. So whenever you've got anything to do with the devil, don't be shaking in your boots because Jesus has won. That's important. He's had the victory over the devil. So how powerful is the devil? Does he actually have the power to tell the future, for example? Well, he knows enough about the future, as we do, to know that his days are numbered and it's not going to be long before he'll be thrown into the lake of sulphur, which is going to be a great day, I can tell you. But how is it that it says that the fortune tellers who had the spirit of, God, the, spirit of the devil in, he, in them, I'll start that sentence again, how is it possible that the fortune teller who had the spirit of the devil in her, that she could tell the future? Does that mean that the devil knows the future or not? Well, here's my different answer to last night. Oh, it's the same answer. But uh, in the book of Job, in the book of Job, the devil says to, says to the Lord, consider my servant Job. If you do all these nasty things, then I reckon this is what's going to happen. He'll end up turning his back on you. And the devil got it wrong. He couldn't see the future. See, I don't think that the devil has the power to see the future in this kind of way. But he's terribly deceptive. And I think there would have been the perception that he was able to tell the future in some sort of... that the, the person who was the slave girl could tell the future in some sort of way or the other. Maybe it's a bit like psychics today who, when they share their little tricks, they'll tell you about warm readings and cold readings and how they're able to work out and, you know, selective memories and all that sort of stuff. That's my, my newest, latest answer. I, it's, it's a, you understand, there's a bit of fogginess there. <laughs> it's a bit unsure. But the devil's powerful, but he doesn't have power over us, so don't worry about it. There you go, question two. Is it unwise or sinful to celebrate Halloween? <laughs> Another easy question. Um, it's a bit late in a way, uh, or it's very, very early, but it was asked after Halloween, so here's my, here's my answer. Uh, is it... Unwise or sinful? I don't think it's sinful, but it could be unwise. Can I move on to the next? You're not going to let me off that easily, are you? The festival is not a satanic festival, okay? It started, um, oh, you know, 2,000 years ago as a big pagan festival. They, they talked about when things went into winter, the days got shorter and it got darker. And because of the darkness, there was sort of death. So it was all, all sort of related to that. And the Christians jumped onto this. And in about the fourth century, they said that the, the same festival was going to be a festival where they would mark All Saints Day. And that is the death of all of the people who were followers of Jesus who died in Rome around the persecution. So they had a big day to remember them all. Then that kind of got distorted, like a whole lot of stuff happened in the church, so that they ended up having masses and things in the 12th century where they would be praying for all the people who were in purgatory. Now, purgatory is not in the Bible. It's, it's a horrible doctrine. And so that kind of got mixed up with Halloween and so on. The reformers in the 16th... This is a long answer. Sorry, you asked for it. The 16th century, the reformers came in and said, we don't like all this purgatory stuff. We don't like all this mass stuff. 
were booted out. And so it basically went. But then, like a lot of these things, it popped up again in the 18th century. And so they had this thing, Halloween. And it was a time when they talked a lot about death and skeletons and what life after death and the spirits and things like that. And also practical jokes, even to hundred years ago. And from that, it came to the point where we have what's the sort of modern Halloween as it's continued today. Uh, when Mandy was growing up, um, her mum used to say, oh, we don't do Halloween. It's an American thing. Now, now we've become more globalised, so we sort of send our stuff overseas and we get back other stuff to us as well. And so chatting to Rain, it's a, in, in Northern America, it's a really big festival kind of thing. But with many Aussies, many Aussie Christians, and even some American Christians, I say, look, it's a satanic festival. We must avoid it completely. So what do we do with it? Well, I think that there's an argument, in fact, and a bit controversial here, that it might be a good time for Christians to get involved. Because if there's all this talk about death and there's all this talk about the afterlife, we shouldn't necessarily be locking our doors and saying we're having nothing to do with that. But we need to be cautious. And we need to not celebrate evil. We need to celebrate the joy of Jesus and the hope of eternal life. A mate of mine wrote this little piece of paper out for his six-year-old daughter. And they went around with Bibles at Halloween, giving out Maltesers and Bibles with a little note. And I'll skip... Well, I'll read you the note. I kind of like his, his strategy. He says... Happy Halloween is the little note. Halloween started in the ancient Celtic festivals and talks a little bit about that. He says, people dress up and made lanterns to to represent and ward off evil spirits. The name Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve, the evening before All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day. It was a day to remember those who died trusting Jesus. Instead of giving you a trick or getting a treat, we want to share with you the good news that we can stare death in the face. Not because we invite death into our lives or dress up as a skeleton, but because Jesus has promised that death is not the end. It is by his death and resurrection that the power of sin and death has been conquered. You can read all about it in this little book. There you go. So there are different ways to skin that cat. Uh, Some might say that's a bad idea. Others might say that's an interesting idea. But hopefully you'll see I don't think it's sinful, but depending on how you go about it, it may be wise or unwise. Question three, aren't all unmarried Christians living with the gift of singleness, at least for that period of time? We've got a bunch of questions on singleness and marriage that came up from a few weeks ago, and I said I'd deal with them in due course, and here they go. Uh, They sort of stem from a particular verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 1 Corinthians is written to the same people in Corinth that we're going to meet that were all about sexual immorality. You'll hear about that in the sermon in a moment. But in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6 and 7, it says, I say this, Paul says, as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So is it the kind of thing that you have this special gift or power from God that enables you to be single or married? Or how does that all work? Well, uh, Basically, we need to see that if you are married, you have the gift of marriage. If you are single at the moment, you have the gift of singleness. It's the gift that God has given you for the situation you're in right now. It's not a superpower, but it's a kind of a way in which you can see the the situation that God has given you in which you are to live right now 
for as long as that's the case. And as Christopher Ashe says, my circumstances are God's gracious gift to me. And I am to learn to accept them from his hand as such. So if you're married, that's a gift. If you're not married, that's a gift. And as Tim Keller says on this very topic, he says, when Paul speaks of gifts, he refers to an ability that God gives to build others up. The single calling that Paul speaks of is neither a condition without a struggle, nor on the other hand an experience of misery, It is fruitfulness in life and ministry through the single state. When you have this gift, there may indeed be struggles, but the main thing is that God is helping you grow spiritually and be fruitful in the lives of others despite them. A couple more questions on the topic. Is the gift of marriage something to be desired, given it, the marriage gift leads to a divided devotion to God? Well, Paul says... In the verses that follow, I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. So that is why Paul says it's really good to be single. There are great advantages in being single. At the same time, marriage is a good thing, and good things are to be desired, and God has given marriage as a gift so that our society is able to have children, and that's the context for it. And it's part of his humanity, which is good. And what's more, we saw in the Song of Songs earlier on in this year that that sexual love is celebrated. And it's not something that we as sort of aesthetics, aesthetics should say, you know, oh, it's no, we don't do any of that as Christians. No, we do in the context of marriage. Um, But there are very good things about being single as well. So I think the gift of marriage is something to be desired, as is the gift of singleness to be desired in different contexts, and it's okay to get married. Question five. Why does singleness seem to be rarely encouraged for Christians? This is a good question. I don't think we'll get an answer strictly from the Bible on this one, but let me give you my own little brief ponderings. I think one of the reasons that singleness is rarely encouraged is because it can be hard, and it can be lonely, and it can be challenging. And because marriage is good. But it might also be the reason that singleness is not encouraged often for Christians is because the church has maybe swallowed some of the idolatry of the world. And the idolatry of the world says that your sexuality defines you. And not just your sexuality, but what you do with your sexuality defines you. And so we say, I am a straight man, or I am a bisexual woman, or that is who you are as a, as a human in today's society. And I think that we've misunderstood that. See, that I think we've probably in some ways sucked up the idolatry of the world because it is a good thing to be single. In fact, there are great men and women who have chosen to remain single and have been an enormous blessing to us through that decision. And so if you're not yet married or you've become unmarried, then don't think that you need to be married to be fulfilled or to be completed. Because Jesus is the one who fulfills us and completes us. And if you want your spouse in your mind or in reality to complete you, then you're turning to the wrong place. Question six, should we encourage Christians into singleness if they're in a relationship with a non-Christian? Well, I've said this before, that I don't think it's very wise for a Christian 
to be in a relationship with a non-Christian, a going out kind of relationship. And that is because when a Christian gets married to a non-Christian, it usually ends up with a Christian struggling in that marriage. So I think it would be better for that Christian to become single or to remain unmarried so that they then might wait for God that if God gives them the gift of marriage to a Christian, they have that gift, or God gives them the gift of singleness, they have that gift. Um, And as I've said in the past, if you are a Christian married to a non-Christian, stay put. That's what God says. He said, stays in that situation. Be faithful to your spouse and to God, and maybe God will use your situation, your faithfulness, to bring bring your spouse to Christ. And finally, question seven, if babies cry through their baptism, does that mean they don't want to be baptised? I thought about this. No, I think it just means you've got a horrible minister. I haven't dropped anybody yet, but anyway, we'll see. There's still time. Thank you for your questions.